like I mentioned earlier, um, we won't be getting back into Proverbs until next week, so kind of a brief um, hiatus. But if uh, everyone would like to turn in their Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, today we'll be in uh, the book of Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. There are a lot of things that uh, happen in our culture right now that uh, not too long ago uh, would have been considered scandalous, but, but now they're just kind of like everyday things. And, and I'm not talking about like just the big stuff uh, that's happening in culture. I'm talking about like everyday things. So the generations before mine can uh, attest to a lot more than these. But here, here are a few things that I'm talking about, things that were scandalous at one time that are just now standard practice. Women wearing pants. Uh, this is something that happens now, and we don't even think about it, but at one point, it was unthinkable. Even our own Linda, uh, who we miss so much, uh, uh, when she sang on the stage one time for worship, she asked me if it was okay if she wore pants. I told her it was okay. But yeah, at one point, even women showing too much ankle is was considered scandalous. But there are other things that happen today uh, that we don't give much thought about that used to be very scandalous. So, so wearing blue jeans in church would have been a scandal not too long ago. Tattoos are still a little iffy in some circles, but generally aren't thought of as a big deal anymore. And did you know at one time that, that regular bathing was actually considered scandalous? Well, one of my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite historical preachers from the 1900s, like this is just like last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones thought that regular bathing was absurd. Yeah. My point is that these things uh, sound strange to our ears and will sound even stranger to new generations. And honestly, I'm, I'm glad we've come around on these. My wife especially glad about the bathing regularly. But it's sometimes good to pause and to think on how scandalous these kinds of things would have been at one time. And, and I say that because typically when we read the Gospels, we don't read it with the right sense of scandal. We don't pause enough to think about how absurd-sounding Jesus' teachings would have sounded to conventional ears. And that's, that's the whole point. The kingdom of heaven is absurd-sounding to earthly-minded creatures. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus comes and He flips our understanding of God and the world and His reign on its head. And unlike these other things that I've listed today, right, these funny things, I don't think we can afford to lose the scandal here. Right? The kingdom of heaven must always be shocking to us. We must always be shocked at how otherworldly God's kingdom is. We must always be shocked at our own earthly mindedness. And most importantly, we must always be shocked at the scandal of grace. We must always be shocked at how unfair grace is. 
Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, uses this parable to teach us how directly confrontational and absurd the kingdom of God is to our earthly hearts and minds. The point is to shock us into rethinking and reorienting our lives around the way this kingdom works rather than how this world works. So I invite you to read together at home. You can read in your Bibles. You can follow along on the screen. We'll read Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others were standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker to do what I choose. With what I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So first, Jesus uses this parable to show the absurdity of grace. That's an interesting point that I'm going to have to back up because the central themes of this passage, if you, if you read it and, and kind of think about the words that are used, the central themes of this passage are the opposite of grace. Right? So what, what words come up over and over? Do you see labor and wages and, and payment? Right? Grace is unmerited. Wages are earned. You don't earn grace. If you could earn grace, then it's no longer grace. So this passage, what it centers on is wages and earning. Working and earning. So, let's back up and take a look at context. If, if you're at home, if you're here, flip back a page or two to chapter 18 and look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's the theme that Matthew picks up all the way from chapter 18 to the end of chapter 20. And every teaching and every occurrence that happens is situated under this question of who is the greatest? That's the question Jesus is answering here. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you turn back to today's passage in chapter 20, what's the thing that comes right before it? The rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler is an example of someone who is considered the greatest in this world, but is the least in the kingdom of heaven because he cannot bring himself to love Jesus more than he loves his riches. But even more interesting is that the problem with this young ruler was the idea that he could earn eternal life or a place in God's kingdom. So follow me. Follow me here. It is no surprise then that Jesus tells a a parable about what? Earnings and wages. The exact problem that plagued the rich young ruler. And of all the areas of life, you just think about life and think about all the areas of life, work is the main one where we can rightly expect payment for our labor. If I do this, then I should get this. It's labor is contractual, it's transactional. In fact, if you were to work and not get paid, that's unjust. It's like if I do the laundry for Mallory, right? If I'm expecting praise or reward or something, then I'm not doing it for Mallory. I'm doing it for me. My doing laundry has become a transaction rather than an activity in love. But if it's my job to do laundry, then yes, I should rightly expect payment. Especially if Mallory is my boss. And the more I'm married, the more I'm learning that that might be true. So, for all this talk about wages and earning, how does grace fit in? The grace is in how the master hires. It makes sense, right, for this guy to go out and hire early in the morning. Right? He went out early in the morning. And then, okay, he goes out again about the third hour. That's like mid-morning. And then the sixth hour, that's noon. It's like, okay, you're really really still hiring? Okay. Uh, But then, then he goes out at like, uh, the ninth hour, which is really late in the day. And remember, they don't have like lights or anything to work. So sundown means work is done. So what happens is he doesn't just hire at like three in the afternoon. He goes out at the 11th hour and hires more workers. He hires more workers at sunset. This, the sun is setting at the 11th hour and he says, come and work for a day's wages. So the master of the house shows extraordinary grace by first hiring people that don't deserve to be hired. Right? They're just standing in the marketplace. But secondly, by hiring non-discriminately. And that's exactly how grace operates. It goes to those who don't deserve it and comes to them without discrimination. And here's the thing. While grace is not transactional, right? If I do this, then I get this. It's not transactional, but it's, it's, it promises. It's promising. It makes a promise that it keeps. To each of these workers, the master gives a whole day's wages. And grace follows through regardless of how the work is done. Irregardless of the work. Grace follows through. 
this whole scenario is as if the boss of a company goes and hires a, a door greeter on December the 31st and then pays him a whole year's wages at the end of the day. He doesn't need that extra worker. This extra worker doesn't deserve a whole year's pay, but that's the whole scandal of grace. It comes to you full, it comes to you free, and it comes to you indiscriminately, irregardless of who you are or where you are. You don't deserve it. You don't do enough work to earn it. You don't do work well enough to earn it. But a whole lifetime of grace is yours in Christ. And that's the absurdity of grace. But if there's anything we humans are good at, it's complaining and self-pity. In our house, uh, we get this way when we get food delivered and our order's wrong. Oh, they always get my order wrong. Why is it always my order? They forgot my tortilla strips, my bacon. And honestly, we let it like ruin our nights. Ah, I'm so mad they got my order wrong. Never mind that we have food and that if we want, we can just afford to get it delivered again or just go out and get more. It's absurd if you give any thought to it. So that's why next, Jesus exposes the absurdity of our hearts. After hiring uh, the workers and the working comes the payment. So look at verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, a denarius, right, is a day's wages, right? This is what you get paid for your labor for a day. Now, verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And, on, and when, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, typically, when you hear this passage uh, interpreted, it goes something like this. The workers hired early are those who are saved early in life, and those who are hired late are saved late in life. And typically, the application is that those who are saved early shouldn't grumble against those who are saved late, right, uh, because uh, they receive the same kind of reward. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing to that interpretation. Uh, that's certainly an implication of this passage. But I, I don't know about you, but in my entire experience of knowing people who've gotten saved, I've never been mad when someone got saved later in life. In fact, I've been really happy when people are saved later in life. I don't care what reward they get, they're saved later in life. Like, praise God, hallelujah. So no, I don't think that's the main interpretation of this passage. I think Jesus is exposing something deeper at work. You see, the problem with these workers, the workers hired early, was exactly their transactional attitude. Did you see that? They thought they would receive more. You have made them equal to us. Despite the fact that they agreed to work for a certain amount and be grateful that they have work, 
they use their work as a means to justify that they deserve more. That's what's going on in these workers' lives. They use their work as a means to justify deserving more. And hear me, this is a problem whether you're saved early in life or late in life. Every single one of us in moments of darkness have either uttered the words or thought them in our hearts, after everything I've done for you, God, God, I've been faithful to you. Why aren't you coming through for me? The problem is we expect something because we've been obedient to a certain degree. We expect that we deserve something from God. But that attitude simply exposes a sickened heart because it it shows our obedience wasn't done from love or gratitude. It was done transactionally. I will do this only if you do this. Someone once said about human relationships that when someone says, after all I've done for you, they are revealing that what they did for you was not for you at all, but for their own need to control you. Their generosity was just a contract with hidden terms of compliance. Breach that contact, contract and you become problem take that and apply it to how we treat God when he doesn't come through for us in the way we want him to and this is our attitude we reveal it wasn't done for God at all but for ourselves and our own desire to have control at the bottom what this is is self idolatry We exalt ourselves over God so that He becomes the one who serves us rather than the other way around. We become the master. God, this is what you should do because I did this. The fact of the matter is that these laborers were judging the master based on how they were treated. They were judging him based on their limited and self-centered point of view. They thought he was being stingy, right? But the owner is actually lavishly generous, right? They didn't think about it from the terms of the 11th hour workers, right? He, the fact remains that the, the owner is generous. That's why he asked in verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? Most of us thought this way about our own parents, right? You don't ever let me do anything. You don't ever get me anything nice. You don't want me to have fun. When most of the time, our parents are doing everything for our own good. But these laborers assessed this owner and judged him as stingy. So, when God appears stingy to us, the problem isn't in Him, but that we think too highly of ourselves. That's the absurdity of our hearts. It's absurd. So the remedy to our absurd hearts is our last point, the absurdity of the kingdom. So the owner of this vineyard, he he confronts them and he says pointedly in verse 13, friend, 
I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Here's Jesus' climactic point. So the last will be first, and the first last. The reason I don't think this passage is mainly about whether we're saved early or saved late in life is because of this last verse right here. If it were, Jesus would essentially be saying those who are saved first will be last, and those who are saved last will be first, but that doesn't make any sense at all. When Jesus says the last will be first and the first last, he's talking in terms of who gains entrance into the kingdom. Right? That's exactly his point with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, though he is first now in terms of status and wealth and comfort and ease, though he's first now, he will be last in respect to the kingdom, which is to say he won't be in the kingdom at all. So Jesus is using the the foil of these workers to show who is first and who is last. Who is in the kingdom and who will not be in the kingdom. So the last are those that we've already talked about. Those who see their relationship with God as transactional. As deserving of something different or better. Mad at God because he's been stingy. or, or, Or because he's wronged us. That's those are the last. So what does it mean to be the first? It's the opposite of that. It's the humble. Those who know they don't deserve to be hired until God comes and rescues them. They are those who humble themselves to become the least. And this comes out not only in their relationship with God, right, but with other people. The transactional, right, those who operate from transaction use other people as a means to get something else. So red flags that you're this way are that you're short with people, you're hard on them, or or, or you see them as a nuisance. They're in the way of what you really want. But the humble, they humble themselves to serve other people for their good. To build them up, even when it costs them personally. The humble are the grace starved. These 11th hour workers didn't know if they'd get a day's wages. These 11th hour workers did not know if they would have food to put on the table. When we are grace starved, that denarius of grace is precious. Very, very precious. The grace starved long just for a denarius of grace to get them through just enough grace for the day. The humble are starved for grace. And the humble, the humble are are God-centered. The humble, they might struggle. They might struggle with this, right? They might struggle with feeling or seeing God as generous at times. But the difference is by faith they know and they accept and they rest in the fact that God is lavishly generous even when He doesn't appear that way. 
The humble know who God is, and by faith they rest in that fact, even when he seems stingy from our limited point of view. The humble know that God is generous, and instead of banking on their works, or their obedience, or standing, or whatever, they bank on Expectation comes not from what we do, but from who God is. That's the difference. We expect from God not based on who we are or what we do or what we say, but on the fact that God is generous and that He's gracious. When I was going through a particularly hard time of of doubt and depression, I remember thinking and praying many times like, God, why aren't you coming through for me? But it eventually occurred to me that because I was asking that, I was saying, God, why aren't you coming through for me? I've been faithful to you all this time. I've stayed faithful to you. I haven't turned from you. It occurred to me that it wasn't me that was staying faithful to God at all. He was the one keeping me faithful to him. The faith that I had all along through my doubt and my struggle belonged to Him and His grace. I could claim nothing. Which is why we need Jesus who was all of this for us. Because we've all exalted ourselves, we are all last in the kingdom, and we need someone who doesn't exalt themselves and who is perfectly humble. And God the Son humbled Himself for us And he became the last so that we might become first. We need this Jesus who died for us and for our absurd self-exaltation. We need this Jesus to take our sinful self-exaltation on himself and to give us his perfect, humble righteousness. We need this Jesus... to be radically, differently transactional. To give us what we never earned, what we don't deserve, and to take from us what we rightly deserve. That's the scandal of this transaction. That, That He takes on His perfect nature, our sin, our pride, our self righteousness, our self exaltation, He takes it all on Him, and He gives us Nothing but grace and love and perfect righteousness. That's the kind of unfair transaction that I want. We need this Jesus to live in us by His Spirit that we might live in a state of grace starvation. We need this Jesus desperately to humble us and to teach us humility Grace-starved, last-place humility. So with God's help, what I want to do this morning is try to apply His Word to our hearts. So first, recognize that when God seems stingy, it's my own heart that has exalted itself. Secondly, dwell on God's generosity especially His generosity in giving His Son. As long as the gospel seems small to us, God's generosity will be small. 
the gospel must be big to us. Third, humbly accept God's dealings with you while faithfully trusting in his generous character. Fourth, be thankful and long for the denarius of grace. Let's pray. Father God, far too often we exalt ourselves. Far too often we assess you and your character based on how we're treated. And we judge you. We, we call you stingy. We accuse you of holding back from us. God, how desperately we need you to humble us. Father, we ask you by your grace and your spirit to make us grace-starved people. Help us to starve for grace that just that denarius of grace would get us through the day. Humble us, Father, and keep us humble, dependent on your grace alone. Let us be grace-starved people so that with the, the day's grace that we have, we would be lavishly generous with that with other people. Help us to humble ourselves that we would be last of all. Yes, let's, let's compete with one another, Father, but who can be last of all? And Father, lastly, our, our, our prayer is, is this. It's not what I will, but what you will for my life and for my good. And I pray, we pray for the denarius of grace to sustain us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.